Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. You have found the most informative hour of sports radio you'll listen to all week long in the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, including my mom and my wife. In segment three, Marshall Glickman joins us for our monthly Glickman Global segment. We're going to examine tennis, the state of tennis. We're going to talk about that. Nathan will uh, like that topic. That's in segment three with Marshall Glickman. In segment four, Robert Rowell. He is the president of the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors are one of the greatest sports stories of the year so far. As an eight seed, they knocked off the number one seeded Dallas Mavericks in round one of the NBA playoffs. The fans in the Bay Area are going crazy for their Warriors. We'll chat with Robert about what the team is doing to capitalize on that playoff success in segment four. A couple of other notes. Visit our website at sportsbusinessradio.com. Email your comments and questions to info at sportsbusinessradio.com. Listen to SBR On Demand. We are podcasting. Go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. I am joined by the birthday boy, Nathan Roach. Happy birthday. 27. I'm uh, right on the cusp of being in the late 20s, but thank you. I appreciate that. Had some Mortons recently, which was fantastic, of course. That's good. You know, we've got lots to discuss on this week's show. Two huge stories. Number one, Dale Earnhardt Jr., as we've been discussing in recent weeks, As I speculated on my blog a few weeks ago, he did in fact announce this week that he is leaving DEI. We will break down the ramifications of that, but that is big, big, big. He will become the biggest free agent to ever hit the NASCAR open market. We'll talk about that next in headlines. Also, the New York Yankees are paying Roger Clemens. How desperate are they for pitching? They're paying 45-year-old Roger Clemens $28 million, Nathan, for this season. I don't think it's a very good investment, but we'll talk about that next in headlines as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you look at this here, $153,000 a day. You know, I used to think about Michael Jordan. He used to make $10,000 a minute per game. This is unbelievable. At 45 years old, I'm in the wrong business. Well, the other thing is, too, is that the Yankees already sell a lot of tickets. They already have a payroll worth $200 million. I don't see how this pencils out. We'll talk about that more next in headlines. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Don't go anywhere. This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center, passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. 
back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline, sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, one of the biggest sports stories of the year so far, Dale Earnhardt Jr. is leaving the company founded by his father, Dale Earnhardt, Inc., DEI. You know, we've speculated for a long time that things weren't going well in the negotiations between uh, Dale Earnhardt and his sister Kelly, who's his business manager. And then on the other side of the table, you've got Teresa Earnhardt, his stepmother, and Max Siegel. Max Siegel, nice guy. Seems like Dale Jr. and Max got along. But at the end of the day, I don't think Dale Jr. and Kelly could overcome the history and the poor relationship they've had with their stepmother, Teresa. The other main thing here, Nathan, is that he hasn't won a race. Dale Earnhardt Jr. has not won a race for 36 consecutive races. He doesn't think he can win at DEI. They don't have the engines. They don't have the cars. He needs to go somewhere else if he wants to win. Well, not only is this one of the biggest stories of the year, but it's also one of the saddest stories of the year. I mean, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and his father were so close. I mean, his father's legendary. So is Dale, Har- Dale Earnhardt Jr., for that matter. And now he's leaving the team. The other business-related side of this is what's going to happen to Budweiser. Budweiser is also a sponsor of DEI, and their contract is up, if I'm not, if I'm not wrong, at the end of the season as well. And therefore, what's Budweiser going to do? And if, if they leave, then what's DEI? DEI left with. Well, let's talk about a few things. And and first we'll start with Dale Jr. What could happen to him? He announced this week that he's basically a free agent. He is the hottest free agent to ever hit the open market in NASCAR. There are a few places he could land, but the ones that I wrote about on my blog this week, Hendrick Motorsports, that seems to be a very likely place. They've won seven of ten NASCAR races. They've got Jeff Gordon. They've got Jimmy Johnson. They are the hottest team right now. If he wants to win, That's a great place for him. He could race the number 25 car. Uh, They could maybe get Casey Mears onto another team. So that's a a likely place for him. If I was betting, that's where I would bet he would go. The other place that he could go, and this would be really cool, Richard Childress Racing. That's where his father raced. That's where the black number three car still resides. If Dale Earnhardt Jr. wanted to go to Childress Racing and race a Chevy, which, which he wants to do, and race the number three car that his dad drove, Budweiser would obviously come with him. What a marketing bonanza that would be. And, you know, you talk about the legacy and everything with his dad. Boy, NASCAR fans would get real excited about that. I completely agree with this. And you talk about how Dale hasn't won a race in, in you know so long. But you know what? He is just like a lot of other famous sports athletes in that now he's established his name. I don't think that necessarily winning constantly is going to help promote himself as a marketable value to any team that he goes to. I think that he is marketable no matter if he's losing a bunch of races. I mean, look at Alex Rodriguez. He struggled last season. He's still an incredible marketable athlete. And I think Dale Earnhardt, with his name alone, is marketable. Listen, the reason this didn't get done is because there was a price on that 51%. We talked a few weeks ago. Was was Teresa Earnhardt going to just give him majority ownership, or was she going to say this is going to cost you $50, $60 million? I don't know that she said it was going to cost you $50, $60 million, but they couldn't come to terms. So that's number one. 
Uh, the other thing that you've got to look at here is, yes, I agree with you that, no, he doesn't have to win a lot of races. He'll still be marketable. But he's 32 years old. He wants to race till he's 40. He wants to win races. He said uh, in his press conference, to. I want to win championships. It's not about money. He's already got a ton of money. He's going to get a ton of money, whoever he goes to. The other ace in the hole he has here is he's got JR Motorsports. If he wants to start his own team, he could do that. Michael Waltrip has done that. Hasn't exactly worked out the way he had hoped. It's a lot more work because you're not only the driver, but you're the owner of the team. You've got to worry about a lot of other things. I don't think he's going to go that route. My sources also tell me this deal is going to get done quickly. Wherever he goes, look for a deal to be done by the end of May. DEI, what's going to happen to them? I don't know. We were going to have Max Siegel on the show this week. Now I'm told he's not going to be available until June. But if you're DEI, if you're Max Siegel, I think you're nothing more now than a licensing company for the late Dale Earnhardt Sr. You are going to you know, do all his marketing. You've got the museum. And then also don't put out of the question that Teresa Earnhardt may sell DEI. There have been some rumors going around about Yates Racing and uh, there's a guy named John Maynard. Maybe those two entities coming together and buying DEI. Read my blog, Sports Business Radio. We've got lots more on this topic, but it was a big topic this week. The other big story of the week, headline number two, the New York Yankees have shelled out a $28 million deal for one year to Roger Clemens. That equates to about $4.5 million a month. It's $153,000 a day, Nathan. Now, here's my point. Yes, they need pitching. Yes, they've already spent $200 million on payroll before paying Roger Clemens $28 million. So I guess if you're going to spend that much, what's $28 million more? But if you're looking at this as a, a good business investment, I don't know that it is because, first of all, they're, I don't know Roger Clemens is going to get them over the top. He might not even get them to the playoffs. And then you look at, is he really going to sell that many extra tickets? Is he going to mean higher TV ratings on the Yes Network? I don't think this deal pencils out at all. No, I, I don't either. We talked about it last week, and like you just mentioned, you know, the Yankees are trying to get themselves into the playoffs and into contention again, and whether Roger Clemens can do it or not, I'm not sure. The Yankees have so many marquee players that I don't know that Roger Clemens is going to draw more fans than your Alex Rodriguez and your Derek Jeter. He's not going to. He's old. He's over the hill. I'm not saying he's not a good pitcher, but people are not coming to see Roger Clemens the same way they did. Did 10, 15 years ago. Well, the other thing, too, that really angered uh, several people within baseball circles this week is there's a lot of perks in this contract. He doesn't have to travel with the team when he's not pitching. He can go home to Houston. He's getting a free pass that a lot of the guys on the team aren't getting and a lot of guys on other teams aren't getting. And there have even been people that say, you know what, this kind of circumvents a contract by their Players Association. How did this get done? Because guess what? Every player in baseball, especially pitchers, they'd love to go home or not have to travel with the team in between starts. Why does Roger Clemens get preferential treatment? Because he's Roger Clemens. Barry Bonds, for the past umpteen number of years until this year, had his own locker and his own bus and his own trainers. And you know what? That's what comes with being the superstar marquee player. That's what happens when you get to that level. Remember this show, May 12th, 2007. The Yankees will not make the playoffs this year. This will be a bad... Brian with his Boston Red Sox hat on calls it right now. You know what? I, it's not that I'm a Red Sox fan. I do like the Red Sox, but I don't think Roger Clemens, one pitcher, is going to be help, be able to help the Yankees. Their pitching is so bad. I don't think one person, he can go out and win every game. I don't think $28 million for one pitcher is going to get them to the playoffs. Our next headline, 
As the ramifications of Josh Hancock's tragic vehicle crash echo around baseball, teams are examining their policies on allowing beer in the clubhouse. Currently, eight teams, the A's, Yankees, Mets, Twins, Marlins, Astros, Pirates, and Cardinals, don't allow alcohol in the clubhouse. It's at least six more the Padres, Brewers, Red Sox, Rangers, Devil Rays, and White Sox are reviewing their policies. Here's the deal, Nathan. If you've got an investment in a Roger Clemens, in an A-Rod, in a multi-million dollar player, on the team playing or in the locker room, do you really want to give them alcohol where then they can go get in their car and they can do damage to themselves like Josh Hancock did? Well, here, I disagree with you in this sense. I don't think that the clubhouse giving them beer is what causes this. I, I equate it to a parent. You know, you can't watch over your children constantly all the time and everything they do. He went to a bar afterwards and had more drinks. There's nothing you can do to stop players from doing drugs. If they want to ride motorcycles, sure, you could put it in their contract. But if, you know, if that happens, that happens. It's like being a parent. A few more quick headlines. NHL player representatives voted to fire Ted Saskin as the executive director of the NHL Players Association this week. That decision came after a lawyer presented a report about allegations that Saskin, who was put on a leave of absence in March, and other NHL PA employees accessed the personal email accounts of players. Our next headline the NBA playoffs on TNT down 3.4% from last year. On ESPN, they're down 17%. The good news is the second round ratings have some life to them. Golden State, the hottest team in the NBA right now as far as the playoff ratings go. More people are tuning in to watch the Golden State games than anyone else. Last headline of the week, Street Sense won the 133rd running of the Kentucky Derby. Derby ratings up 12% on NBC. And Street Sense uh, paid the highest amount for a uh, favorite of any Kentucky Derby in the last 10 years, $11.80 for a winning ticket. Hey, nice work. My brother was out there at the Kentucky Derby this year. He's Bob Costas, his assistant. He said this was the best event he's ever been to. So I had no idea. Kentucky Derby big time. Coming up next, Marshall Glickman. We're going to do our monthly installment of Glickman Global. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. For an international outlook on the world of sports business, Sports Business Radio presents Glickman Global. My guest is Marshall Glickman, the CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, thanks for joining us again this month. 
Brian. Good to talk to you. So you've been a busy guy in the tennis world these days with the French Tennis Federation. They run Roland Garros and one of only nine Masters Series tournaments. And now the ATP itself, you have them as clients. What's the state of the union in tennis these days? Well, Brian, as I see it, the game itself is better than it's ever been. You know, I was in Miami recently for the Sony Ericsson Open, and I found myself on an elevator with several players, both men and women. And my gosh, here these guys are six foot three, six five, and the women are mostly, you know, six feet. These athletes are tall, they're strong, they're agile. And I think that's a great advantage for tennis because the game shows so well in person and on television. You know, the fans are close to the action, and just like in basketball, you know, it doesn't hurt that these players are pretty good looking. So, okay, my question is this then. You know, the players are getting bigger and stronger, they're good looking, but why is tennis suffering in popularity so much? First and foremost, there are way too many tournaments. You have 64 on the men's side, and I think it's 59 on the women's side. So you often have two or three tournaments taking place in in different places on the very same weekend. And that doesn't include the four majors. So the result is outside of the majors and maybe three or four of the Masters Series events, you can't even gather the best players at the same place in the same tournament at the same time. So let me let me interrupt for a second. So that would be like if there were several, let's look at golf for a minute, if there were several different tournaments going on and Tiger Woods was playing in one, Phil Mickelson's playing in another, and Ernie Els is playing in another. That's what you're saying is happening in tennis. That's exactly what's happening in tennis. And, you know, they're kind of in a pickle because it's hard to cut back on the numbers of tournaments because of the way tennis is structured. The tournaments are all individually owned by separate entities, and tennis doesn't have really a single governing body. That's a big difference, I think, between tennis and golf. Right. Now, in tennis, the tournaments are independent entities, and that's very much the opposite of how our leagues are run here in the States, where many of the rights, such as global and national television, licensing, certain sponsorships, are collectively sold, and then the revenues are shared equally. So with this structure in tennis, it is inevitable that the tournaments are going to put their interests ahead of the collective interests of the game. So, Marshall, it sounds like the structure of tennis is really a big part of the problem. In my view, it is the problem. Let me just put it to you kind of in a nutshell. One, the interests of the four major tournaments are not aligned with the interests of all the other tournaments, the other 64 in the case of the men. The interests of the players are often not in sync with the interests of the tournaments. The interests of the players' sponsors are often in conflict with the tournament sponsors. Yeah, I see that a lot. Yep. And the interests of the Masters Series tournaments, which in the men's side are the top nine tournaments below the four majors, are often at odds with the interest of all the rest of the tournaments. So from my vantage point, tennis needs a sugar daddy 
with very deep pockets to come in, buy out many of the smaller tournaments, pay the players for their collective commercial rights, just like they do, by the way, in the NBA, and restructure the entire game from scratch. The other thing tennis needs is a czar. Somebody like David Stern in basketball, um, who has the charisma, the skills, and the smarts to put the collective interests of tennis as the first priority. Now, if my friends in tennis who are inside are listening to this, they're going to remind me that what I just said is a fantasy. And I suppose they're right. You know, I don't usually use the word impossible, but doing the right thing in tennis, I must admit, is pretty close to impossible. Marshall, we'll talk about the solution in a minute, but let me get your opinion on something. John McEnroe, Andre Agassi, both retired players, names, charisma. What would you think of either one of them sitting atop being your David Stern of tennis? Well, I think they need that kind of an advocate, no question, somebody who's who's got the respect of a lot of people, although John is fairly controversial, even though I tend to agree with a lot of things he has to say about the game. I think Andre might be a better choice, but uh, respectfully to them, they also need somebody with a deep financial and, and business and marketing mind. So I think maybe a combination. Now, I think tennis has that person now in Etienne de Villiers, who was brought over from Disney Europe. I think he's an outstanding executive. The problem he's facing, I think, is largely the players and certain of the tournament directors who, again, are looking out for their own interests. And, of course, the other big problem you have in tennis, and I suppose you have a similar problem at times in golf, although I think it's more pronounced in tennis, is there's a small number of players that are so dominant, and their interests are often at odds with all the rest of the players. And that makes it very hard to find solutions. My guest is Marshall Glickman. He is the CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Marshall, what's the next best solution that we can uh, come up with? Well, new thinking and new initiatives by the leaders of, of the sport. I think coupled with a new attitude of cooperation and foresight from the players. The way it is today, many of the top players regularly skip Masters Series tournaments sometimes in favor of lower-level tournaments where they're paid an appearance fee and they can breeze through. You can't pay appearance fees, by the way, for the Masters Series tournaments. Now, both the ATP and the WTA, to their credit, have recently taken steps to change this, and I think everybody's hoping these steps will be effective. Marshall, you mentioned new thinking, new initiatives. Given all the constraints you've mentioned, What is tennis doing to improve things? Well, on the women's side, WTA CEO Larry Scott, he's doing a brilliant job moving things forward. They recently adopted a plan called Roadmap 2010, which is an effort to substantially overhaul the schedule. For example, they've increased the off-season from seven to nine weeks. In, In combination with this, they're increasing the prize money, which will be up 30% to $72 million. And significantly, they're providing a historic revenue-sharing agreement 
where the players share in tournament revenue growth, which I think, um, you know, sort of following the pattern of what we've done with our leagues in the U.S., I think that's a very key move. Now, on the men's side, it's been a tougher road. I mentioned that they brought in Etienne de Villiers, who came over after running Disney Europe, and I think he's doing an outstanding job. He's bright, he's strong-willed, but he's walked into a very political world where his power is not even close to absolute. For example, they recently tried to institute a round-robin format for certain tournaments because that would assure that the top players would play deeper into the week. But this was killed after complaints from many of the top players. So, Marshall, is it the most important change to assure that the top players are all playing in the same tournament? We talked about that a minute ago. Yeah, well, actually, Bryant, it, it, it's, a, it's a lofty objective, but I don't think it is realistic unless there's, with that, a drastic reduction in the number of tournaments, which I mentioned earlier I think is next to impossible. So what I've been advising my clients in tennis at the French Federation, at Tennis Canada before, now at the ATP in certain of their tournaments, is to stop being obsessed with the player field and follow a more you know, U.S. sports business-like model of instituting best practices on the marketing and business side. In my role with the ATP, for example, we are showing them new strategies for ticket sales that are directed to a broader cross-section of people who might be interested in going to a tennis tournament, I think really because of its big event status, people who can enjoy a tournament for social reasons, for entertainment reasons, and business reasons. Tennis traditionally, and I've learned this as I've gotten more involved, has focused almost exclusively on avid fans, which usually means people that also play the game. But the number of avid fans and the number of people who are playing the game uh, internationally is dwindling. So part of the necessary shift, in my view, is to, ta- is to stop taking themselves so seriously. I think the era of shh, quiet, please, (laughs) I hope, is coming to an end. We need more tournaments to be like the U.S. Open, where the crowd really gets into it. Yeah, I've been to the U.S. Open. It's a fantastic event. We've got just about two minutes left, Marshall. Does tennis see itself as entertainment or as a sport? Well, traditionally sport. Tennis is just beginning to understand the entertainment aspect. For example, at the Miami tournament, there's fashion shows, there's concerts, and there's a full range of ticket packages designed for more than the avid tennis fan. And by instituting Hawkeye in the stadiums, and this is the replay system where players can challenge a call. Yeah, I like that system. Yeah, and what's really cool, Brian, is the replay that uh, that the umpire is looking at and that the players are looking at and the TV people and the media, um, and the fans, it's all the same replay, and they're all looking at it at the same time. And so that adds drama, which is terrific. Marshall, minute left. Uh, You just made a return trip from uh, doing some tennis consulting in Dubai. Uh, Tell us about that, if you would. Dubai, a place where there's a lot of money floating around. I bet. Many of your listeners will remember a few years back when they staged a promotional event with Agassi and Federer playing on the helipad 
of the Raj Hotel. Yeah, that was awesome. Remember that? Yep. It's the you know the only seven star hotel in the world. So I had a tour of the Raj last week, and then I come home and I see Matt Lauer on the Today Show, and there he is, live from Dubai, standing on that very helipad. You mean your client wasn't putting you up at that hotel? Come on, no, Marshall. Brian. I I don't quite rank up there with Andre. You don't uh, roll like that. Yet. No, but you know what? Tennis needs to do more of that. Yeah, they definitely do. Uh, you know, which kind of brings us to our final point. Tennis has too few stars. I mean, you've got Nadal, you've got Federer on the women's side, you've got Venus Williams and Sharapova, but then there's a lot of faces without uh, recognizable names attached to them. What can yeah. tennis do to change that? Well, it's not easy. Um, it's interesting that in golf, even though Tiger and, and Phil, to a lesser extent, and VJ kind of have dominated, they've done a better job, I think, sort of taking advantage of that star power to in, actually enhance the recognition of a much deeper list of stars and up-and-comers. And I think tennis really needs to focus more on that. And part of it is to let the personalities of these people come out a little bit more. And that's why I say they got to get rid of that quiet-please mentality and let the people be themselves. The beauty of tennis when it was in its prime, McEnroe, Connors, Nastasi, yep. Borg, you had all these characters. And tennis needs more personality, more oomph, more noise, more fun. Well, Marshall, that's all the time we have. Thanks again for joining us for this month's installment of Glickman Global. For more information on Marshall and G2 Strategic, go online to g2strategic.net. Marshall, take care. We'll talk to you next month. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk soon. Thanks. Okay, take care. You are listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection, not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu, and they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. One-on-one with those making the big-time decisions that impact your sport. This is Sports Sense on Sports Business Radio. Business Radio. My guest is Robert Rowell. He is the president of the Golden State Warriors. Robert, thanks for making time to join me this week. Uh, My pleasure. So, Robert, basketball fever, it is gripped. The Bay Area, the Warriors bathing in the success of your big victory over the Dallas Mavericks. Give us a sense for just how crazy things are in the Bay Area right now. Uh, everyone in the Bay Area is excited about Warriors basketball. You know, if you don't have a ticket to, to Game 3, you know, you're trying to figure out how to get one uh, or how to become a season ticket holder because we still actually have a few tickets upstairs that we're selling in season ticket packages that we've held. And it's uh, the fevers, it's there. 
Yeah, I mean, tickets, I'm reading, StubHub is saying this is the toughest NBA playoff ticket to get in the league right now. Uh, do you have any, like, funny stories you can share with uh, people who are doing just about anything to get their hands on a ticket? I've got one that's kind of funny. Um, we, You know, as when, when you run a sports business and you've got season ticket holder customers, and we, we've got a lot of people who share their seats, and we had uh, we had a couple. Uh, obviously, won't give you names, but we had a couple phone calls this past week where we actually had to put people on um, a conference call because they claimed they didn't know each other. You know, uh, because the one person wanted uh-huh. to use the seats, and it, I, I just find that kind of funny when you have guys uh, arguing on the phone. I sat in your house when we split up tickets. You know. Oh man, yeah, that's <laughs> that's definitely that's when it gets down to the nitty gritty with uh, arguing over who's going to get those seats if you're splitting your uh, season tickets. Speaking of your season tickets, you know, you're enjoying tremendous success right now. This is a, a dream scenario for most sports franchises. What are you doing to leverage this for the future with ticket sales and with sponsorships? Uh, we've already begun to leverage it with ticket sales, and we've sold 3,000 new season tickets for the 2007-08 season um, to date. Um, before the season ended, before we clinched for the playoffs, we were at 800. So we actually did you know, 2,200 new season sales. Uh, with respect to our corporate partnerships, uh, we've obviously been in front of a lot of companies over the course of the last month, uh, just as normal course of business, but with the team um, you know, catching on and, and getting into the playoffs and then catching fire against Dallas, uh, we've got a lot of people that want to be part of what we're doing next year. So we're, we're in a lot of meetings and we're on a lot of phone calls. Robert, for people who've never been to the Oracle Arena, to the Bay Area to see a Warriors home game, I mean, I'm watching TV. You've got Carlos Santana, Woody Harrelson, Owen Wilson, Kate Hudson, all these people at the game. And then you've got you know, just a, an eclectic mix of, of people watching your games. Describe for us a typical uh, crowd for a Warriors game, if you would. Well, a typical crowd for a Warriors game uh, over the past couple of years has been about 8,500 uh, long-time Warrior season ticket holders uh, mixed in with you know another nine to ten thousand other fans that uh, you know that come to our games that are that are casual fans and or plan holders. Uh, the crowd is very intense. It's pretty sophisticated. You know the Bay Area sports fan is finicky. Uh, he and she has a lot of choices. So you know you've got to make sure that you're doing some of the things that that capture their attention and their imagination. They enjoy the game of basketball. They love getting behind the team. Uh, for the playoffs, they have been absolutely rabid. I would say for you know the last month and a half, a uh, month and a half of the season, they were very, very, very loud and very crazy. But for that Dallas series, it was the loudest I've ever heard it in that building. Yeah, I was watching. Uh, I think it was Game Six, and TNT analyst Steve Kerr said, you know, he's obviously been to a lot of big sporting events, played in a lot of events. And he said it was the most rabid crowd that he's ever seen in his entire life. That's a strong statement from someone coming like Steve Kerr. Oh, it's an intense group. I mean, uh, the entire uh, second half of the game six against the Mavericks, our fans stood the entire time. Jeez. And were just yelling and screaming. And, and I think it, it obviously came across pretty well on television because I, I watched some of those games, um, you know, after the game. And, you know, our, our, our crowd just didn't give up, didn't let in. And, and they're the type of group that, you know, they're going to be ready on Friday night and also on Sunday when we get Utah back. And I think it'll be just as loud, if not louder, if, if, if that's even possible. 
My guest is Robert Rowell. He is the president of the Golden State Warriors. Robert, a cool thing that I read about that I saw that you guys did. First of all, you turn on the TV and you see it's a sea of yellow T-shirts, bright yellow T-shirts. It looks like a collegiate atmosphere. But I saw that you worked with one of your sponsors, Comcast, to get those shirts done. Can you tell us that story? Because I think it's a great example of a team working with a sponsor to bring something like that to life. Well, actually, initially we worked with a bunch of sponsors, and we had a a couple uh, sponsors lined up for games one and two. And game one was so successful that Comcast called us and said, how do we get, you know, the rest of this series and how do we get the next round as well? And and, uh, you know, we said, well, you know, we can develop, you know, a presenting partnership and, you know, obviously you know, put a dollar figure on it. That's more than just the cost of the T-shirts, uh, which which was, the you know, the prior arrangement that we had with them. But they wanted to make sure that, you know, they were the exclusive uh, partner there because, you know, hey, their their T-shirts are being seen on television. You're going to see their logo, you know, their, the Comcast logos on the back. And, you know, when when Turner or ESPN is shooting the building at, at Oracle Arena, you know, you you get people people's fronts and backs so there's a lot of exposure on on comcast's behalf especially you know outtakes and and cuts from you know commercials and such and they just wanted to get involved and and we said well let's do it and let's do a little bit bigger and let's have the second round now be presented by comcast that's a great story uh kind of as a secondary market here i see on ebay some of these shirts which were free are going for as much as 150 dollars a shirt that's really amazing you know, and we're giving the shirts away for free uh, at our games. So, you know, if you have a ticket to the game, you get it for free. So what you do with it after that is obviously up to you. But that kind of shows me that the fever is, is has caught on, that's for sure. That's amazing. Hey, let's talk about the makeup of your team for a moment. You were instrumental in bringing in Chris Mullen. He was a consultant before, but I read where you were instrumental in, uh, you know, bringing him on board to his current role of executive vice president of basketball operations. Chris really had no prior management experience before that what did you see in Chris Mullen that made you think hey this is the guy that can lead us back to where you are right now well I worked with Chris when he was an athlete of ours um, when he was on our team um, as a player and we kept in contact you know when he went back to Indiana and and then when he came back in his final year with us and I talked to him about what he wanted to do post you know playing days and and one of the things that I was interested in was having him on board in a management capacity position so we uh, put him in a position called special assistant his first year and he worked with me and and also at that time our other general manager um, just on day-to-day things and getting his feet wet kind of dipping his toe into things and then once uh, that season ended I sat down with him and talked about uh, a bigger role in getting him involved as our executive vice president of basketball operations and I work uh, very closely with with both he and Rod Higgins and you know in, in all the stuff that we do and you know, I know that he didn't have um, a lot of a business experience. He, he's learned um, it and continues to learn it on a daily basis, but he's done a, a nice job of putting our roster together and, you know, bringing uh, the type of, of player on board here that fits the style that we want to play. And then also, you know, you look at Nelly and, you know, it kind of culminating with having a coach that's able to, to push these guys to play that style. Yeah, you know, Robert, this has kind of been – a season of the perfect storm for you guys. You bring in Don Nelson. A lot of people were surprised that he came back to the Warriors. And then, you know, you've got Mitch Richmond, Rod Higgins, former players. And then you made a real bold trade uh, about midway through the season. You brought in Al Harrington and Steven Jackson, who have paid big dividends for you guys. Can you talk about that for a moment? Well, you know, we, we brought Nelly on board. And uh, unfortunately for us, during the, the course of the first part of the season, 
we were pretty beat up. I mean, we we were without uh, Jason Richardson for most of the season uh, with uh, the knee surgery that he had, and then he broke his hand when he came off back from the knee surgery. So we really only had him for 20 games uh, for about the first 60. And then Baron Davis got nicked up, and you know we were without him for several weeks. So we really never had our entire roster intact. Um, then we made the trade with Indiana, which was a, a trade that we needed to make. I mean, we were we were in a situation where we were just kind of hovering about five, six games under 500 and not going to the places that we wanted to go. And you know we needed to to do something. And and you know picking up Stephen Jackson and Al Harrington and Josh Powell and Sharunas Jakashevich in that deal were, was very big for us. And you know, we're in a situation now where, you know, we've capitalized on that. And once we got Jason Richardson back from his injury, um, and once we got Baron Davis back, you know, we finished the game, the, the season, I think, you know, with some staggering numbers, something, you know, like, I don't know exactly what it was, but 10 and one or whatever with our starting lineup. So, you know, Robert, it's funny. I was thinking uh, as I was preparing for this interview, if you look at the Oakland sports scene, you've got the Raiders, you've got the A's and you've got you guys. With the Raiders and, and the A's, I can remember so many, I guess, cast-offs. And I look at this team and I see guys that were basically cast-offs, but they've come together on this team and, wow, look what they're doing right now. Do you think there's kind of a, a blue-collar mentality to Oakland? You know, I would say this. We are the Bay Area's basketball team. You know, we play our, our games in Oracle Arena, you know, which is located in Oakland. And obviously, we've got a great relationship with the city of Oakland and you know, we we rebuilt the building and committed to to stay in our facility. But we're the Bay Area's team, so from the standpoint of of being blue collar, I think we're very uh, we we play in a in a very uh, kind of high octane offense. Um, we have a fan base that is very passionate about what we do, and 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 who we are and what we're about, and and kind of where we've been, which is something you know, which is a place where none of us will ever forget where we've been. Um, so I would say. No, we're not necessarily blue collar. So let's talk about your your history for a minute. I mean, again, as I just mentioned, you've got Don Nelson, you've got Chris Mullen, Mitch Richmond, Rod Higgins. How important is it to tie today to your team's past? Well, you know, we've we've had uh, we, we're one of the three charter members of the of the NBA. Um, you know, it was us, the Celtics, and the Knicks because we were the Philadelphia Warriors. So we've been around for sixty years. Uh, so we've got a, a pretty rich history, and we won championships back in the 40s, you know, with with uh, Eddie Gottlieb's uh, Philadelphia Warriors, and then we came out to San Francisco and became the San Francisco Warriors, and then moved over across the bay to Oakland and became the Golden State Warriors. Uh, we've, you know, had some success in the past. You know, we had uh, some great days with Nelly back um, <clears throat> back in the 90s um, with Run TMC. Uh, you know that that particular team. I love know, that team, by the way. That was a great team, and they were successful in, in you know, making the playoffs several years straight. Uh, didn't have a, a ton of success once they got into the playoffs. I think we only advanced to the second round once. But you know there was a there was just a, a style of play that that was you know synonymous with the Golden State Warriors, and that's really what Nelly's brought back to us now here. You know, in 2007, and you know, obviously, we had a, a stint for over a decade where we weren't in the playoffs. And you know, the one thing that we continued to do was, um, you know, have a fan base that was passionate about our team. We disappointed them quite often, but they hung in there with us. So, you know, the success that we're experiencing right now, and hopefully continuing to build on, um, really, our fans deserve to enjoy and, and savor every moment of, of what we're going through right now. My guest is Robert Rowell. He is the president of the Golden State Warriors. Robert, let's talk about you. We've got a few minutes left. (laughs) 
39 years old. You are the youngest president in the NBA. You have had a, a great rise to the top. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you came from and how you got to the seat you're sitting in now, because it's a pretty amazing story. Well, I'm in my fourth season right now as president of the team, and I oversee you know the entire operation of the organization. And obviously, I have uh, Chris Mullen, you know, under me on the the basketball side. And I let him, you know, do his thing on the basketball side. I get involved, you know, when we get into some contractual things and sure. things of that nature, and you know, just where we're going to be and where our business plan is. Um, prior to that, you know, I ran the business side of our operation for several years, and I, I came on board 12 seasons ago with Mr. Cohan, who um, was the sole owner of the Warriors at at that time, and actually um, still owns 80% of the team. And really, um, you know, there's another person who deserves uh, everything that he gets right now as far as the enjoyment and satisfaction he has in watching this team because he's really he's really hung in there and, and stuck in there with, you know, with with the people that uh, you know that work for him, and he's given us the tools and resources. So I think he's he's really having a good time right now. But uh, I started with him 12 seasons ago. Uh, prior to that, I was, uh, you know, at, at the college level, I was, um, I worked for Division II, um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, until we took them to Division One, and I was, you know, a, a part of, of taking that program to that Division One level, which was pretty cool because you got to, you know, you got to get really get involved in, in all of the intricacies of, you know, what you need to do to be in compliance. So, you know, that was a great experience for me, and, and uh, you know, this, this, whole, uh, this whole experience of being, you know, with the Warriors has been, uh, trying at times, but you know we're we're able to enjoy ourselves right now. That's for sure. Robert, congratulations on all of your success. I wish you the best of luck during the playoffs. Guests appearing during our Sports Sense segment will be treated to the gold standard of all steakhouses. Morton's a steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. For the Morton's nearest you, go online to mortons.com. Again, Robert, uh, thanks again. I hope to make it to uh, Oracle Arena one of these days and be a part of that amazing crowd, and I wish you the best of luck uh, during the rest of the playoffs. Thank you so much, and let us know when you're on your way out. I definitely will. You're listening to Sports. Business Radio will be right back. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for custom fit fine clothing and personal service to match, I call my friend Brian Tacker with the Tom James Company. Tom James is highly trained sales professionals like Brian Tacker come directly to your home or office, saving you valuable time. Brian plans and coordinates my wardrobe so I am perfectly attired for any situation, whether it's a TV interview, a press conference, or a fundraiser. The Tom James Company offers over 500 suit fabrics and 250 shirt fabrics, and they carry all the accessories you'll need, from belts and ties to shoes and socks. The Tom James Company has been in business for over 40 years, and 80% of their business is generated from repeat customers. Call Brian Tacker today at 503-807-7956 or find his information at sportsbusinessradio.com. Brian Tacker and the Tom James Company, the official fine clothing partner of Sports Business Radio. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. We are back with our final segment. Last Saturday night's Oscar De La Hoya Floyd Mayweather Jr. fight on HBO set all-time pay-per-view records of 2.15 million buys and $120 million in revenue. The buys surpassed the previous mark set by Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield in 1997. The new record revenue topped the old mark of $112 million for the 2002 Showtime Mike Tyson-Lennox Lewis bout. Now, Oscar De La Hoya, when it's all said and done and you put in the prize money and the pay-per-view, 50 
million. And he lost. The guy who beat him, Floyd Mayweather, brings in $20 million when it's all said and done. The richest fight in boxing history, Nathan. Well, and it might be the last real fight in boxing history unless something changes. You know, with UFC and WWE getting so popular, we don't have many boxers coming up to have these huge prize fights where people are going to tune in. I can't think of any other boxers that are going to draw this type of audience or even other fights unless these two go at it again. So it's kind of disappointing for the sport of boxing. Obviously, a lot of money involved. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk some UFC and some MMA coming up in uh, probably the next month. We've got some guests lined up. But uh, you're right. Those sports and the money, the people investing money, are investing in UFC and MMA, not in boxing. Lots of thank yous on this week's show. Marshall Glickman, Robert Rowell from the Golden State Warriors, our show staff, Nathan Roach, Bobby Corser, Josh Blank, Darren Peck, Ron Barr, James Harris, and Doug Zanger, our sponsors. Morton's the Steakhouse, Nike Golf, the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon, and Brian Tacker with the Tom James Company. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com and click on the podcast page. Again, happy Mother's Hi, Day Mom. to my mother, Jacqueline, and to my wife, Catherine, and uh, Nathan. Nancy. There you go. And uh, maybe you'll... Have a mom one day, I, I, too. Yeah, you never know. I'm going to be in Reno this weekend with my mom running a Mother's Day breast cancer run. So wish me luck. There you go. We will see you next week. And you've been listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.